Hey listeners, before I start this episode, I want to say that 2020 is a big year for pharmacy and politics. With elections being held from the presidency to state and even local officials, make sure you register to vote. If you're not sure if you registered to vote or just want to double check, go to vote.org to easily find out and follow the link. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and today I have with me patient advocate Loretta Bozing. Now, she's done quite a bit with online and mail-order pharmacy, and Loretta, you're one of the first non-pharmacists I've had in the podcast, so what do you do for a living and where do you live? So I am about an hour south of St. Louis, Missouri, and it's funny that you say that about this non-pharmacist. A lot of legislators often ask me if I am a pharmacist. Many would probably be surprised if they knew that I actually work in the insurance industry. I've worked in the insurance industry for quite some time. My degree is actually in social work, and upon graduating, I was actually working at the hospital until my son had a liver transplant. And with the difficulties that he had right after transplant, I wanted to have some more flexibility. So I became an independent contractor. I ended up getting my insurance license to become an insurance agent. And I wear several hats outside of open enrollment. I would often find like other roles in the health insurance industry, such as contracting and credentialing physicians, auditing, assisting with the appeals process with the health insurance marketplace. But what's very interesting about those roles as an insurance agent is that a lot of what I've learned about pharmacy benefit managers, it wasn't on the license exam, and it was only briefly mentioned in the training received for selling commercial plans. Insurance agents just aren't taught that level of detail, and I realize that now it's quite alarming that actually since starting my advocacy, I've allowed my health insurance license to expire. I still wear a couple of the hats, but I really feel like people in the industry have an obligation to speak up for the patients when they see lives being risked, and they should protect the patients over the profits. So my current role as the founder of the nonprofit, Unite for Safe Medications, is what I'm most passionate about, and I hope that eventually I get the nonprofit funded so I can do this full-time. Yeah, I think you've uh, you've got a great website there. I went and looked at it before starting this. It's uniteforsafemedications.com. No spaces or any symbols. You can guys can go check it out if you want in the, after the podcast episode, obviously. You also started, and this is what got my attention, a change.org petition. The title of that was Stop Forcing Mail-Order Pharmacy as the Only Option of Coverage. And the part that really stuck out to me was you had over 165,000 signatures which is a heck of a lot for any petition, especially even on change.org when you can get some kind of funny ones on there. Have you uh, have you seen any traction with that at all? So we have 165,000 supporters on change.org, and we have an overwhelming amount of support across our nation. We are seeing you know, legislation being sponsored or getting through you know, to the hands of uh, government officials up to even the level of the governor. But a lot of times when legislation makes it through, we're seeing pushback from the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. That's the association for the PBMs, such as CVS, Caremark, Express Scripts, OptumRx. They seem to have a lot of money that they can put into uh, lobbying our elected officials and ensure that our voices aren't being heard. And then you also have the challenge with ERISA or the self-funded plans uh, for employers. That's another issue that is kind of stopping these regulations or, or laws to really go into effect. Okay, yeah. And I mean, it's a pretty powerful tool that change.org and to see 165,000 signatures is just incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, great job there. I think you really hit a sensitive topic for many Americans. Kind of with that, you've obviously been an open critic of mail order pharmacy, and I think rightfully mm-hmm. so. Can you elaborate or share the story that kind of helped you become so critical or kind of alerted you to the issues going on with mail order pharmacy? Yeah, so many people believe that I'm totally against mail order pharmacy, but in reality, I'm not against mail order pharmacy. I believe that there's definitely a need for medications to be delivered to patients, but I believe patients should always have options. And the safest way to currently get medications delivered is through a local pharmacy and through temperature control delivery services that accommodates, you know, like the patient's time and availability. Standard delivery services such as FedEx, CPS, 
and USPS are just not safe. You know, they're risky. So I'm not actually against mail-order pharmacy. I'm just mostly against the forcing of mail-order pharmacy or the forcing to just one pharmacy. I'm against, you know, penalizing patients uh, by charging them 50 to 100% of the cost if they use their trusted pharmacy. For us, I had to find out the hard way that mail-order pharmacy is very loosely regulated. And my child uh, had a liver transplant at the age of two after he contracted the flu. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone in liver failure who's you know that close to the end of life, but it's so hard to see your child going from a healthy little one to being on a ventilator in a matter of days. And one doctor actually told us that our son may never be able to walk or talk again. And thankfully, he received the liver transplant, but I will do anything to ensure that I never see my child again in that situation. I also have that extra sense of duty to protect him because of the transplant. Whenever someone gives, you know, the gift of life, it's, you know, I've realized that gift is so precious and it's living on through him. There's another child living on through him. So I want to not just protect my child, but also the child that lives on through him. So not long after his transplant, we were discharged home and I decided to try a mail-order pharmacy. What happened is they shipped my child's liquid oral transplant medication on a 102 degree, degree day without protection. And I questioned the medications after he ended up in transplant rejection, but you just think someone has to be making sure that this is safe. So that was when he was two and I just vowed to never again use mail-order pharmacy unless I can prove that it was safe. So in 2018, we were forced to mail-order pharmacy and away from our trusted pharmacy. We were mandated to use CVS specialty mail-order. And I recall the first time that I tried to get my child's medication filled at the hospital pharmacy. And they had told me that I was unable to get the medications filled. The rejection, actually, they said, was along the lines of, this is an inappropriate facility to fill the medications. And you know, I feel like the pediatric children's hospital is probably the best place for me to fill my son's medications. I was terrified about the temperature issue from the past. I literally broke down in tears. The hospital pharmacy, uh, they worked out a deal with me to be able to get a one-time fill while we began our fight with the CVS. I was promised with, was by CVS Specialty Pharmacy that they would protect my child's medications. When they arrived again on a hot day without protection, had my son's labs not elevated two weeks after. Now, I probably wouldn't be on this call today. After that, I had to find out, you know, were these medications actually safe? So I heard many reasons why a CVS shipped my medication, my son's medications without protection. That's whenever I realized that someone just wasn't telling me the truth and I decided to call the FDA and the manufacturer and I asked them if it was safe to give my child the medications after being exposed to such temperature extremes. And when they had said, you know, to discard the medications, I was just shocked. You know, I, I knew then that I had to fight for my child. So I made 30 to 40 calls and, and uh, the physician even tried to appeal and the pill was denied. I was told by CVS, though, that I could drive 270 miles one way if I wanted to be able to protect my child's medication Jesus. from the... <laughs> yeah, it was unreal. So in the meantime, I came across a lot of other patients uh, suffering, and the patients taught me about the delays and the thefts of medications being shipped to the wrong address. They, there were also patients that had been harmed from mistakes that could have been prevented. I find... People with transplants like my son, they're going days without medications. So I just, I feel a deep responsibility to fight for them passionately and to fix these issues. I want to say thank you for sharing that story. It's obviously very personal and, and scary mm -hmm. too when you're talking about your own child who's having to go through that. I thank you for sharing that. It, it really hits mm -hmm. home to me as someone who's expecting a child soon that I hope to never be in a situation like that. If I am, you know, how am I going to have to fight for fight for my future child. So yeah. thank you again for sharing that and for your advocacy work with this. Especially patients like this need high touch, high care, because the medications do have very tight standards. This isn't even an ibuprofen that's coming through the mail, which still has temperature regulations. It's something that's <laughs> literally life or death for them in cases like your, like your son. 
Right. Yes. What do you think should have been done to prevent this situation so your son didn't have to face it? I feel like patients and caregivers should be warned about the risk, first of all. I had no clue that uh, my child's medication could have been, could have lost potency and that his life was at risk whenever I gave him the medication. So we need, you know, transparency there. And the patient's concerns about these issues must be heard. I feel like that's another, we're trying to let everyone know about these issues and it just seems like no one is is hearing us you know and of course you know we should not be forced to mail order pharmacy for the most critical life-saving medications it doesn't even make sense yeah especially when you have those those temperature issues uh, with a lot of specialty meds and not just your sons so mm-hmm. obviously medications like the one your son takes are considered specialty in, in cases like this and have to go through specialty pharmacies. You've kind of discussed that you've had some experience with these type of pharmacies and how they're a little different than some of the, the regular retail pharmacies. You might walk in like a Walgreens or a CVS or Rite Aid where they, they might not necessarily have the medication in stock. They might not be the best trained on it where some of these specialty pharmacies do have a little more training on it. With mm-hmm. that, do you think it's fair that certain medications are only covered at specialty pharmacies and not some of these more common locations? So actually, you know, I believe that the PBMs and the pharmacies are, as far as their specialty pharmacies, I don't really feel like they're that special at all. And I've come across many parents who've had to beg and appeal to get their infant or toddler's medications filled in liquid form. Uh, the PBMs refuse to cover the medication in anything but a pill form. And it's just interesting. One patient actually had to get their local representative involved after a pill was denied to get their one-year-old's transplant medications in a way she could safely ingest instead of pill form. I just, I've never had that issue with our trusted pharmacy and all of the excuses that they use to classify drugs as specialty drugs in order to force us to do mail, own mail order are the reasons why we need to demand safer access other than mail order. You know, they treat rare chronic conditions. You know, the the crucial face-to-face options or that relationship with the pharmacist, that's essential for these patients. You know, they have a special storage and handling requirements. Well, you know, I, I'm thinking of a woman who received an ineffective shipment of frozen insulin that was shipped from Arizona to Michigan in the middle of the winter. And a, another child who was, who was on chemotherapy, he was at the hospital ready to receive his medications, but then they realize that the insurance won't cover the medication that's at the hospital. They have to get this medication shipped from, you know, the East Coast to the West Coast. And if it's temperature sensitive, then it does it, that just doesn't even make sense. Whenever, you know, they need the close monitoring, the ongoing clinical support. I feel like, again, that's where that relationship with the physicians and the pharmacists, that's crucial, you know, and being able to hopefully have those two as local as possible and so they can collaborate effectively, that's critical. And and also, you know, the, these medications are often high-cost medications. You know, should these medications really be left on mailboxes and doorsteps? You know, it's obvious, but it's so hard to believe that we're fighting, you know, for, for such a common-sense issue. I totally agree with you on this and not to cut you off there, but you said that some of these medications that are classifying as special are just basic insulin. I know I had a patient just the other day who wasn't allowed to fill Lantus, a long acting insulin at my pharmacy of which we have probably 20 or 30 boxes in stock. And it really isn't that special other than it's a long acting insulin. I can counsel you for like a minute. You'll know how to use it and how it works and what to watch for, be out the door and be fine. We do it all the time. But one insurance said, nope, that's specialty. They have to go through this mail order mm-hmm. pharmacy, which is exactly your point. And, yes. also, and also hitting your point, specialty medications or what they classify as specialty medications are on pace, I forget the exact year, but sometime in the next few years to reach 50% of prescription drug spending. So that really just shows wow. you exactly what you're saying about how high cost these medications are and why these mail order pharmacies in many cases are trying, or the PBMs are trying to force them to their own mail order or specialty pharmacy so that they can keep that revenue in house. Is is that correct? Kind of with what you were saying? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I really feel like there's nothing special about putting medications in a bag and mulling them out. And it, the amount of uh, care that we receive from our trusted pharmacist versus the mail order pharmacy is just, there's much better focus and patient care, I believe, with our 
personal face-to-face relationships with our pharmacists. Again, to that point, I work with a lower income area, if you will. And there's a pharmacist who's worked in that neighborhood for different pharmacy chains for, shoot, the better part of 30 some years. And people come in and ask for him. And if he's not there, you know, they, they respectfully are kind of like, oh, okay, well, I'll wait till he comes back. And I have to explain to them, well, he stepped down to part time. He's only picking up like two shifts a week now. It's going to be <laughs> tough. And, but he's built that rapport with him, what you're talking about. And is just able to basically work miracles because he knows these people so well and known them for so long. And they're little common day, everyday things, but he's so good at it and has known them for so long. He'll even walk up and be like, hey, you know, I know last time your dog chewed this up. Make sure to keep it where uh, he can't get it or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's little stupid things like that that resonate home with people in the brick and mortar pharmacies. And you precisely answered the next thing I was going to ask you, which is, why do you think access to brick and mortar pharmacies is so important? And it's because of that relationship. And I'm glad you see that too, because so many people these days look at, why can't we just ship drugs? And you're hitting on the exact point of why you shouldn't and why it's important to have those, those at least basic relationships with people that you see all the time. And so you can ask questions and feel comfortable asking those questions too. Yes, it's so true. And the option to access, you know, to brick and, and mortar pharmacies, it's, it's crucial for the nation's public health. Our brick-and-mortar pharmacies, they fill an important role in our communities and across our nation. And there are cases when people are having to wait for an antibiotic to be mailed in order to receive a coverage, or they have to drive further now because their local pharmacy is closed to do the poor reimbursement. Yep. And, you know, the immediate access to those medications, that's important to everyone. It's just unreal that we're having to wait at least three to five days you know, for the medications that one time we could get in 15 minutes. And when it comes to like infectious diseases or illnesses, it is so important that we can get to those medications quickly. Yeah, you know, and I've even seen cases, not even that rarely, where certain mail-order pharmacies are telling people it'll be three weeks or 21 days before you get your medication. And I'm thinking to myself, how the heck are you going to make someone wait three weeks to get their medication if the doctor just wrote them a prescription? No, I yes. mean... I guess you could a lot of them do do a one-time override fill at local pharmacies, but that kind of defeats the point of if they're willing to go and get it for something they need, why not just let them go get it? Mm-hmm. Why make them wait three weeks? I mean, three to five days when you said that, I'm going, well, that's on the good side. I've seen it go a lot longer than that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I do too. I see it frequently that, you know, it's at least three to five days, especially for certain mail-order pharmacies, and that is concerning. Oh, it's, yeah. It's a public health risk. One thing I did want to ask, and you can elaborate this as however you feel, when it comes to using the mail order pharmacies that you've had to use, have you ever received counseling on those medications from a pharmacist when they were given to you? So we have used both specialty pharmacies that were mail order and then specialty pharmacies, you know, at the brick and mortar. I have received counseling at both. My issue right away with the counseling received with the mail order pharmacies, specifically the PBM's mail order pharmacy. I stayed on the phone with that pharmacist for an hour, literally begging them to ensure, you know, that they protect my child's medications, telling them the story of everything that we had went through after his medications were not packaged properly. So being that on the first shipment that arrived, you know, without protection, and then right afterwards, my son's labs elevated, and they've actually continued to mostly elevate throughout the last year and a half to the point my child was in transplant rejection. He's actually just now overcoming that as I speak. So they lost my trust. I don't trust them. I don't want to be forced to to use them. But, you know, I'm still being, afterwards, I was still being told, too bad, this is the only way you're going to get your child's medication. Yeah, that's awful. Unacceptable. Have you, uh, when you call back there, are you ever able to speak to the same pharmacist who counseled you the time before, or is that even an option? And you often get a different person every time you call. I don't think I've ever been able to get through to the same pharmacist. I know that I have called and then I've asked for the same pharmacist and then someone else will say, well, I can help take care of you. And then uh, after I'm on the phone with them for a while, you know, I hear them in the background, you know, because now they know me when I call, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they know who I am now. Um, And they might ask, you know, are you okay? Do you need any help? You know, I hear them like kind of collaborating in the background uh, because they know that I'm on to them. So it's, it's interesting that at the same time, but, you know, I have even asked to speak with a supervisor uh, at the pharmacy after I realized that there was some inconsistent information being told, and I've never received a call back 
from a hmm. supervisor at the pharmacy. So that was very frustrating. Yeah, that that can be frustrating. And I mean, we do rotate pharmacists at most brick and mortars, like the one I work at, but I'm there five, six days a week sometimes. So at least I'm there consistently enough that they can text me and I can you know, kind of call them back or text them back if there's an issue going on to help address something like what you're going through that was very specific to that patient. What are some of the other issues that you've been made aware of with mail order pharmacy? I know I've got a few that I've seen, but what have you seen as a, as the patient side? So as a patient advocate, you know, I really thought when I started the petition, and in fact, in the beginning, the petition was to stop enforcing mail order pharmacy and monitor the temperatures of medication. But I quickly learned that the temperatures are just a small part of the many issues that patients are having. When you look at the delays, the delays are probably mostly what I see. And sadly, it's the hardest thing to see patients without their insulin and rationing their insulin. People in pain because their medications actually go missing at the sorting facility. Uh, you You see medications actually being shipped to the wrong address. There's just I've actually talked to people who one patient actually had issues with a medication that caused her to have a stroke because of the way it was written. It was take as needed, you know, and I just feel like if if patients have, and it was a blood thinner, but if patients have the, uh, if they have that relationship with their pharmacist, that face-to-face relationship, some of those issues I feel like could be caught quickly. And also, you know, I don't want to just use any pharmacist that I don't know. Those medications are my child's life. I want to be able to have a pharmacist that I trust, not just any pharmacist. And once something like that happens, you realize how important that relationship is with a trusted pharmacy staff. You realize that not all are created equal. And uh, there's so many issues. I'm glad that, you know, me and you agree on this because for me, it's a how you interact with people is depends on person to person, pharmacist to pharmacist, even pharmacy tech, pharmacy tech. And sometimes, you know, like I might not be the best pharmacist for you, but my other staff pharmacist is really good at handling mm-hmm. your situation or empathizing with you to really understand what your needs are because, you know, she's got kids that are closer to what your kids age are. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a key thing you hit on is that they're not all created equal. They're not all the same. We have different strengths and different weaknesses. And the other thing that you touched on with mail order pharmacy was it's really hard to address a problem. If, for example, the prescription was written wrong, okay, now you have to send it back. It's going to take how many days for them to get you the new one, what what have you. Whereas if a brick and mortar does it, because I know I've made mistakes and, you know, knock on wood that I mm-hmm. haven't had anything too crazy, but... Well, I have had it when a patient brings back a prescription bottle and I type the directions wrong or maybe I got the dose slightly wrong, something mm-hmm. like that, which a lot of times is caused by being rushed and having to multitask with the, the current way that the system is. But whenever that happens, I can swallow my pride, fix it, give it to them. If I made the mm-hmm. mistake, refund them their copay, whatever it is to get it correct by them. And then also address if they did take it and there was any problems, what to watch for, things of that nature. So, I, exactly. again, I don't know how exactly how you can do that with a mail or a pharmacy that well. I'm sure that there's ways they could probably do it. But when you have that brick and mortar you can walk right into, you can solve it right there in minutes. And in those cases that I've had, when a patient is there, they become my top priority because I realize, uh-oh, we need to get this fixed for any yeah. litany of reasons. Not just like the legal reasons that I could be sued, but I need to make sure that I do right by them because they were something happened that could impact their life, their livelihood, whatever it is. And no pharmacist likes having to do that. We get calls all the time, patients of, you know, this was filled wrong, this was typed wrong, and we look it up. And I'd say 90% of those calls, it's not the actual case. We were actually correct. We did everything right. It might even be higher than that. I don't know. I'm trying to be conservative with my estimates here. <laughs> but but those, say, 10% or 5%, whatever it is that are, and they bring it in, you know, we make sure to go in above and beyond to correct it for them. And yeah. again, it's not 90% of patients we mess up on. It's just of the errors. It's a very small portion. And mm-hmm. we're able to correct that, fix it, take care of them right there. You know, say your son had the dose that was wrong and you caught it and brought it back. We can fix that. We can handle it right then and there if you realized it or if we realized it later on upon a second check, which is exactly, again, why you want to have that the pharmacist who cares for you because they're personally invested because they know you and they see you, not somebody who's 
for lack of a better word, lick, stick, fill, mail it out the door. Yes. And and it's very interesting. Like you said, you know, they can bring the medications dire- in directly to you. What I see is when there are any issues with delays or the, you know, the shipment to the wrong address, medications, as far as with the temperature issue that you know, could be ineffective, there's a lot of issues in that part of the process Beginning with a lot of times, there's too much blame placed on the patient. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their fault. They should have asked for the medications earlier. Or, you know, when a lot of times uh, it's just they did ask for the medication on time, but they just failed to deliver on time. And then it's they'll often deny that the temperature issue is an issue. That's a problem. So a lot of times we know no one's actually tracking the true temperatures of these medications that are just shipped in a bag, left in a, a mailbox or in these trucks that get extremely hot. That's an issue. We we also see lack of accountability due to the loose regulation. So say a patient doesn't get their medications on time because it's lost during shipment, and you'll see the uh, mail-order pharmacy pointing fingers at the delivery service, the delivery service is pointing fingers at the mail-order pharmacy, the mail-order pharmacy might go back and point fingers at the employer. It's there's We don't have a clear-cut example. <laughs> like yeah. We just don't have clear-cut regulations to ensure that patients, when these issues occur, can even file a lawsuit or <laughs> know where to go. Yeah. It's it's just sad. It's under all that something that's loosely regulated is something that millions of patients are being forced to. Oh, yeah, if, if not even tens of millions of patients. And it's funny because I didn't even think of the package theft when I was preparing to, to talk to you about this topic. But that's a great point because I know we've had that happen where a package went missing or in some cases you've heard where the driver takes a picture of it and picks it back up. I'm not going to say that happens all the time. But, you know, those type of package theft or delivering to the wrong address is another major concern because, you know, if you live in a, a neighborhood that's a little bit older, maybe the old older mm-hmm. person across the street just started taking it and didn't realize it was the wrong thing, just read the directions. Because as, mm-hmm. as scary as it is, this is always scary to me, how many patients don't know what they're taking and will just mm-hmm. take it? Or if it was the same drug, but the dose is different, the directions were different, they think, oh, it just got changed by the physician who sent a prescription in. There's so many ways that that can go wrong if it gets delivered to the mm-hmm. wrong address. And I know working retail, if we were to sell someone the wrong package, which unfortunately does happen occasionally, there are so mm-hmm. many self-reporting hoops we have to go through for that. And I don't know if the mail orders have to go through that or if it's something that FedEx is now or UPS or whoever is now accountable for. But there is really, like you said, zero accountability, whereas we are actually forced to have an accountable record of when mistakes happen at our retail one. I know the, the mail orders probably do, but I don't know how it happens when it's mailed to the wrong address or it gets shipped to the wrong address, even though it's you know, labeled correctly, but that's a really good call out. I know uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that you had mentioned before was that sometimes patients are forced to pay higher copays when using mail order versus retail pharmacies. Can you elaborate on that at all? Yes. Yeah, so first thing that the PBMs like to tell our legislators is that we don't force them to mail order pharmacies, but <laughs> they fail. No, but they fail to tell them that if we choose to use our trusted pharmacists, we have a hundred. We have to pay a hundred percent of the cost, which to me is for most patients who you know have severe chronic conditions, you know, or they're they're elderly, you know, in retirement, they can't afford to pay a hundred percent of the cost of the drug. So it really is forcing. So that's what I mean by by that higher copay. I see sometimes it might be fifty yeah. percent. But even with that, it's not fair to the patients and it's not fair to, you know, the pharmacist and our entire communities that are suffering from this unethical steering. I mean, our pharmacists cannot stay open with emergency refills and antibiotics. We we have to do more to and, help them. And to your point, if that's all the pharmacy's doing and it can't stay open, then the pharmacy closes. Now you have no access to those emergency mm-hmm. medications. And that's a that's a huge threat to like local safety, local health issues. Exactly. I, exactly. And that's why I just find this so alarming. And I just, I feel such a need to, you know, resolve these issues. Yeah. Top of that, you know, you said the copay differences. Some of them I've seen where if they fill at say my pharmacy versus a mail order, yeah, it's zero or it's like a dollar, whatever it is to go through their mail order. But when they come to us, because of they trust us, like you were saying earlier, it might be $10. Well, if that person's on five medications, that's $50 a month. $50 times 12 months, you're looking at, what, $600 price difference a year? 
It's, yeah. That's just an absurd amount. Like, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess I see the the incentive for the insurance company to keep it all in house and why they want to do that to supposedly drive costs down. But even in the back end, the prices that they're charging the insurance from the PBM are oftentimes higher than what the the retail pharmacy is charging the PBM, and they're keeping it all via spread pricing, which in, in my state of Ohio mm-hmm. is proven to be a huge issue that costs taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars in, in just one year. So yes. to your point, that that is a huge issue that when they steer these patients to them, there's conflicts mm-hmm. of interest throughout because they're the, they're the middleman, now they're the end point, and then they're also charging the, the insurance. So there's multiple ways they're making money off this, which is why they're forcing people with those $0 copays, even though they say they're not forcing mm-hmm. them to go mail order. So it's it's a pretty corrupt system, as you know, you've, yes. uh, you've alluded to and other people have helped expose in this system. For sure. And I found that on my on my own with whenever we were forced to use the Melwater pharmacy, we had a lower copay. But when I looked at how much they reimbursed themselves versus how much they reimbursed our trusted pharmacists, they reimbursed them $20 for the same medication that they reimbursed themselves $178 for. I, I went back to the farm. I went back actually to the HR department and I, I asked them about it and I told them, about my advocacy. And they said, that's great. You know, we support your advocacy. The choice in pharmacy actually drives down costs. And it's just baffling. Yeah. (laughs) It's basic competitive principles of of economics. Like you can't argue with that. Mm -hmm. One other thing I saw that I've seen some of the PBMs do in some of these mail order pharmacies is sending deceptive letters. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yes. I do see the deceptive letters. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so I've seen letters where they'll actually say, this is what your medications would cost if you use our pharmacy versus if you continue to use your local pharmacy. And these patients are saying that when they actually end up using the mail-order pharmacy, that the charge that was written on, written on there is not accurate. You know, it, it, it was actually costing them more to go to the mail-order pharmacy versus use their, their local pharmacy. But for a lot of patients, they may actually believe that letter. And then recently with the Express, there was a lot of issues. And I actually started another petition about the (laughs) Express scripts, you know, because they had removed a lot of the local pharmacies from the coverage without much notice or warning. Not even the pharmacies knew that they were not going to be included in this uh, specific network that was offered to certain employers. So I did recently though that those pharmacists somehow got added back onto that network but I think the petition was for Express Scripts to apologize for doing that so the petition's still up there we're still waiting for the apology for that <laughs> well no offense but don't hold your breath on that one they don't know. know if they'll be sending that one out soon uh, and <laughs> you know yeah those letters are pretty crazy I know you're talking about an employer-based insurance I've even seen them for the government ones like Medicare where a patient who is dual eligible, so meaning that they're eligible for Medicaid for low income and Medicare for elderly, the pharmacy benefit manager is sending them a letter saying that they can't go to the pharmacy I work at when actually they can because they are dual eligible. They're actually entitled to be able to use that pharmacy because they have Medicare and then the Medicaid part of it will kick in and cover at our pharmacy. But the letter does not say that. And then I also wow. often wonder a lot of times you see these like kind of backdoor apologies of, oh, well, that was automated because they were on this Medicaid plan. Well, that's great, but shouldn't you also know to double check since you're since the same insurance company is insuring their Medicaid or the PBM is insuring their Medicaid and their Medicare? Shouldn't you have thought, shouldn't there be a catch in your system that says don't send this letter to that person since that is blatantly false? But we've seen it come out like that to your to your mm-hmm. point. Yes, and there should be something done about it. I am still... What they get away with is just astounding to me. I just, I cannot believe, you know, with the the steering, the price gouging, the unsafe methods of delivery, you know, the many patients suffering, I cannot believe that this is all still going on without someone standing up and saying, enough, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen to our pharmaceutical care. And I know that our pharmacists are fighting, I guess I'm mostly speaking about, you know, with our legislators. Yeah. There's, this is such common sense. These issues and, and what's happening, they're the most, to me, some of the most unethical and the worst injustices that's being done, you know, to patients. Yeah, and es- I just, especially people like your son. That's, that, yeah. that one sticks with me because it's a little kid, completely defenseless, and then this happens to him. And then you, luckily, have taken on this huge advocacy role. But even to do that took, like, 
moving mountains just to understand and learn about the whole process. And I, I mean, a lot of times people think, okay, pharmacists are just trying to you know advocate for their jobs, right? They can see, mm-hmm. okay, you're going to fill the prescription, you get paid, there you go, there's where the money link is. But it's really not. To me, and we were talking about this in leading up to the episode, it's about putting the care back in healthcare. What's being done yeah. with people like your son or people who are getting frozen insulin or you know, insulin's been sitting out in the heat for how many days in the back of a FedEx truck or even the prescription getting sent to the wrong address, that's not healthcare. Like if that's not even giving them the right ingredients to make their health better or the right drugs to make mm-hmm. their health better. That's completely disregarding any sort of the care part of healthcare, and really possibly even some of the health part of it. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like healthcare. Yeah. And to have to fight for something that's such common sense, like to really make a mom beg to be able to keep her child's medications from the extreme heat or freezing. I just, how much worse can it go? I, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, and that <laughs> no. should be the minimum expectation all along. Yeah, uh, exactly. I'm just... I cannot believe that this is happening in America. Yeah. And, you know, kind of mentioning this whole mail order and, as you said, America here, Amazon obviously recently purchased PillPack Pharmacy. It kind of uh, little packages the way they send the prescriptions out. I'm a little familiar with it because I have dealt with them a little bit. But with Amazon purchasing them, the PBMs kind of constantly changing the rules to force people and their medications to go mail order. What do you think is is going to happen with the future of pharmacy? So when I see, you know, as far as patients, you know, in the pill pack and in hymns, and I, I really feel like we have to proceed with caution there. You know, you have to ensure that when you're taking any type of medication versus over-the-counter or prescribed, that we ensure that we are contacting our physicians, you know, or, or preferably going to them for the medica- the ones that we have built the relationships with. We need to be able to include them in that discussion of as far as birth control, what birth control should, is safe for me to take. Now, I had an issue where for me, I decided to use a local provider that I didn't really know well to get birth control pills from. And, but I have a heart condition. I had, I should say, I've had surgery since. But And apparently I wasn't supposed to be on that birth control because it actually was causing tiny blood clots, <laughs> which Ooh, yeah. ended up going to my brain, causing some neurological issues. And the cardiologist, when he found that I was on birth control, he's like, why are you on birth control? You can never be on birth control. You know, but at the same time, I was high risk if I were to get pregnant again. So it was yeah. something that I know now that, again, that relationship with your physicians and with your pharmacist, it's crucial. You need to prioritize that. And again, I feel like if you can get that that physician and the pharmacist locally, you know that's really important. As far as where do I see the future of pharmacy going? You know, I really feel like there's going to be a great push to have our trusted pharmacists included in our in our coverage. I believe that there will be more innovation with Melwater. We're going to see increased innovators just trying to fill the gaps for the need uh, to ensure that patients are getting their medications timely and that uh, they're being able to get these medications safely and effectively. I feel like that's going to happen. I also feel like we're going to see uh, more physicians join in with our pharmacists on the fight against the PBM's unethical actions, especially as you see CVS, for example, who owns their own motor pharmacies and then they own their minute clinics and, and their retail pharmacies. I can just see the future where they're going to try to steer us or force us to either their minute clinics or to telehealth. And they're going to be filled with, you know, RNs or nurse practitioners instead of, you know, our trusted physicians. So I think that there's going to be a movement of some type to really push patient safety before profits. So I think it's going to be an interesting time over the next few years. But I know that our voices are just going to get louder. So yeah. we're going to push change. And, and as a pharmacist, I'm, I'm thankful for people like you who are pushing for things like that because it's the right thing to do for the patients. It will obviously cause changes in my industry one or the other, but we've seen quite a few changes and for lack of a better term, I've kind of weathered the storms. And for the most part, I think pharmacy care that's delivered at most brick and mortars now, when we're compensated for our counseling sessions, our MTM interactions for the, the medication therapy management part, 
we're seeing better outcomes the more we get us involved. So I would love for to see some of those changes you're talking about and help put us more in the forefront so we can help have those discussions ahead of time so it doesn't become a problem. So if there is a if there is a temperature need, we're helping direct that for something like your son's medication. Or if there is something like the birth control, we're helping having those conversations with a patient like you so that there aren't those major issues that are arising. Because one heart attack, if you know someone were to have a heart attack or pulmonary embolism or one that causes like a stroke in someone like you, that cost of treatment and care in the hospital is way more expensive than that paying for that little intervention to help make a difference in their life, never mind the loss of quality of life and all the other things that go on with that. Yes, and so true. I agree. And that's what people aren't looking at. And honestly, I don't really feel like it's being accounted for. Yeah. You know, the amount of of medications, you know, that are shipped that aren't needed, the uh, oh, yeah. amount of medications that are delayed and the patient's you know, for example, with my son, his lab's elevated, but it was like we fully progressed into transplant rejection. It didn't happen overnight. And when yeah. a patient, their condition declines a little from missing a few days of an, a crucial medication, they may not see the impact of that right away. It may take time, you know, for their condition to slowly worsen. But who's actually tracking the medical cost? I mean, for us, it's been thousands of dollars this time. And the first time, whenever his medications were shipped on the 102-degree day without protection, that was, you know, we spent two weeks in the hospital. There was a lot of medications given, a lot of tests. It was at least thirty to $40,000 the second time when we were in the hospital. I don't feel like any of that is being tracked. Well, then they're stressed. To, I mean, as a parent, you're just, you know, all but losing your mind, having to deal with that and go through that, missing work, et cetera, et cetera. And it really just carry the exponent and builds up. So yeah, I'm mm-hmm. again, I'm so sorry you had to go through that, but I'm thankful for your advocacy and helping lead mm-hmm. things like that. I think that having someone who's not a pharmacist speak up on the topic does speak volumes because you're, you're speaking out on behalf of us and our profession and what we do. And I think that's huge because you don't really have a conflict of interest other than caring for patients like yourself and like your son. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's why it's important that more patients begin to really speak out about this issue and join our trusted pharmacists who are fighting, you know, for regulations uh, on these PBMs and their milliliter pharmacies. Yeah. And especially some of the ones that are, I guess, like popping up almost overnight when you talk about either Pill Club that kind of sends out birth control and it's all done online or for hymns, which is a, I believe they focus on more of the uh, erectile dysfunction and hair growth aspect of mm-hmm. medications. They're very niche. And it seems like if you can just go online and click a few buttons and get it, is that actually healthcare or is that just ordering a drug with a physician exactly. who's just signing off on it? Exactly. And you know, if they want to, if, that one, if that's an option, that's one thing. But my concern is that number one, people need to know about the risk. We need yeah. to ensure that, you know, patient care is truly being prioritized. And um, we have to ensure that it's safe. Yeah. And uh, I just, I hope that, you know, we don't continue to see steering to the lowest quality of pharmaceutical care. Yeah. Because honestly, we should be willing to pay the price for a higher quality and of, of pharmaceutical care. Yeah, because ounce of prevention is a pound of cure, and especially in a case like this. So mm-hmm. uh, again, your son's story and your, uh, you shared has been shared on a variety of media outlets. Uh, NPR, I know, shared it for a, a neutral source that wants to go read it there. And mm-hmm. yet you see these stories and you've had this huge movement with change.org campaign with, again, 165,000 plus signatures, which is awesome. Clearly, you believe, as I do, that brick and mortar pharmacies are vital to help ensure access to the medications as well as that there's an expert there to help support and give advice on a personal and professional level to those patients. What are some of the things you think legislators should do to help support these sort of interactions with pharmacists and to make sure that mail order isn't just like the status quo, that's your only option, whether it be in a state like yours, Missouri, or my state, which is Ohio? So first of all, our legislators must educate themselves about PBMs. I was really surprised whenever I spoke with legislators for the first time and found how complex it was to even explain it to them, you know, we automatically assume that our legislators know and understand uh, the issues with motor pharmacy and PBMs, and, and they really don't. Apparently, it seems like, you know, they're getting a course, you know, offered through PICMA, you know, the Pharmaceutical mm-hmm. Care Management Association, <laughs> and, but that's not where they need to go. But, you know, with the lobbying power that they have, it's, 
it's almost unavoidable. But I just believe that we need legislation that includes transparency and accountability. Now, in my state, we don't we don't have MCOs like Ohio does, mm-hmm. but there are there's still more that we can do here to demand safer access. Yeah. And I think one of the other things, too, is making sure that people who people who are listening to this, make sure you know your legislators or know the ones in your state who care about the topic and and reach out to them, whether you be a patient, whether you be a pharmacist, whatever your role is, that this can impact you somehow. Make sure to know your legislators and and read up on it. A lot of times a simple Google search can do a lot for just uh, helping you learn who your legislators are and then helping you learn what their topics are, what committees they sit on, what they care about. I know in Ohio, we we're pretty blessed to have a pharmacist who I think is about to be term limited, but he's a, a senator who's also a pharmacist and is heading the, hey. health, the health committee in the Senate. And it's good knowing that, okay, he's got our back, but Ohio, we have term limits. Who's going to step up to replace him after he has to step down? I know we also have a his name's Dave Burke, if I didn't say that. And Scott Lips, who's close to Cincinnati, has also been a big advocate for uh, for patients and for pharmacy access, pharmacy choice, some of the things we've talked about today. I, I don't know Missouri that well, but I know that you do have one legislator who I believe is a physician who's put an ixnay on a lot of things and also why your state doesn't have a prescription drug monitoring program. He's basically shot it down every time, and for whatever reason, he's the, he's the final say on this one. I, I don't know much more about it than that. What else do you want to share about mail order pharmacy, some of your experiences before I ask some of the questions I ask every every guest I have on here? One thing that I would like to say is that, um, you know, we have to, again, continue to prioritize the safest way for patients to get their medications. And I know something was mentioned in the past about some of the pushback from the pharmaceutical industry. And I just want to say that we really do have an overwhelming support from the pharmaceutical industry. And you look at who's against this, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's PICMA, it's the PBMs, you know, they have a lot of money. And good reporters always share the both sides of the story. But if you just look at how much money they have compared to, you know, like an organization, last year our nonprofit had less than $10,000 in donations, and we haven't even started grant writing yet. It's extremely hard for us to get our voices heard whenever you're up against companies that are putting millions of dollars into lobbying. So I just feel like, you know, what we really need is unification. We need it to be, we need our pharmacists to be part of that. We need our physicians to be part of that. We need patients to be part of that. I would like to see the manufacturers also step up to the plate. You know, they manufacture these medications, but what good is it if we can't get them in time or if they're arriving in ways that are, that make them unsafe? So we need to unite. We almost need a movement to be able to protect patients' pharmaceutical care. Yeah, and you know, what you kind of said there <laughs> of a more of a cultural reference reminds me of the the recent Star Wars movie, and this won't ruin it for anybody. But there's a quote in the movie when they're referring to the Empire from the Rebellion side, when they say, "They make you feel alone, but there's more of us than there is of them." And I yeah. th- I think that's what it kind of feels like sometimes because we have all these patients who feel powerless, or even pharmacists who feel powerless when going up going up against these empires and huge corporations. But you got to remember, if you vote, there's more of us than there is of them. So we can win in the long run. You're right. I agree. And we, at this point, I mean, we have to, we cannot let, we can't let this get any worse. Yes. All right. So moving on to questions I ask everybody who comes on my podcast. If you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? It would probably be surprising. You know, at one time, I'm sure, well, I'm sure a lot of people would probably expect that I would say to stop the forcing of mail-order pharmacy. But unlike the legislators and the stakeholders in the industry who are not looking at, you know, the huge cliff ahead that we're getting ready to fall off of as, you know, local pharmacies are closing due to the unfair reimbursements and the risk uh, that that poses to the public health of our entire nation, I would actually have to say that we need to fix the issues with reimbursements and we could stop the forcing of mail-order pharmacy. But what good would that do? if my local pharmacy is closed and we're still not able to access them because they're no longer existent. You know, I really believe for this to happen, we have to tackle ERISA. You know, it must change because a lot of times when the states actually pass legislation again, it seems like the PBMs are successfully shielded by using ERISA's outdated laws for the self-funded employees. Yeah, and I I think that you not being a pharmacist says that means a lot more than someone like me saying that. And also the fact that you know what ERISA is, I'm pretty glad that you know what that is. And 
good job for you for being up on that term because you're 100 <laughs> percent right with that so moving on so the last go ahead oh i'm sorry i was just going to say um the way i found that out was because uh, whenever I was trying to, I actually filed a complaint with the Department of Insurance, which ended up on the desk of the Department of U.S. Department of Labor. And consistently, I was told by the U.S. Department of Labor, although this is unethical, it is not illegal. And it was because they fall under, you know, ERISA's protection. Yeah. And for ERISA, for those of you who don't know, can you elaborate? It's E-R-I-S-A, all caps. Can you elaborate on what that stands for? ERISA is actually the law for self-funded employers, uh, so it provides certain protections for those employers. But in this area, I really feel like ERISA is just outdated, and the protections for the employers, I don't really know that it's even protecting our employers at this point from what I'm seeing when it comes from patients, you know, receiving medications and they're actually reimbursing, for example, the PBMs are actually reimbursing their own pharmacy more than our, our local trusted pharmacies. And whenever you see patients, you know, going with, without the medications due to cost or due to the delays, you know, I just really wonder if ERISA is even working for the employers anymore. So until that law is changed, I don't know how much success we're really going to see at the federal level, and especially with employee plans. It's pretty crazy to me that a healthcare company can hide behind employer protection laws to find a way to make more profits and hide some of the games that they're playing. But that's unfortunately what is happening. It is. (laughs) I agree. And I think you answered my last question. If you could change one pharmacy law, federal or state, what would you change? You would change ERISA, correct? Correct. I believe so, you know, because that's what's seeing uh, our pharmacists from being able to be paid fairly. And it's also, you know, what's keeping patients from being able to access their local trusted pharmacies. It's through that law that a lot of the anti-steering legislation that's been passed is getting held up. So I do feel like they definitely need to tackle ERISA. Awesome. Yeah, I would. I would love to see that change as well. Hey, thanks for stopping by, Loretta. You've been a great guest. And again, cannot thank you enough for your advocacy when it comes to what you're doing for changing mail order pharmacy and pharmacy in general, some of the options and choices that people have. So thanks again. I appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. So, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, please drop us a rating on your favorite uh, podcast platform or wherever you're listening to us at. Thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.